All right, we're continuing in a study of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that is uh, devoted to, uh, Paul is talking about the, the relationships in this church, and, and this chapter is devoted to um, kind of three areas of focus, an area, uh, he's focusing on singleness, marriage, and divorce. And it's in the context of them trying to understand up from down in their relationships. Things are kind of messy and, and, and they're starting to just want to give up on relationships. And so Paul is contending. So when you come for a pass, to a passage of scripture like this, um, 1 Corinthians 7, in it you're going to find lots of principles about singleness and about marriage and about divorce but it's not written as a chapter that's just Paul saying, hey, here's a list of principles about singleness, marriage, and divorce. He's writing it to people where this is right in the middle of what they're struggling with. And so there's a lot of wisdom to be gleaned from the principles, but then there's also a tremendous amount of wisdom for us to be gleaned from the context. And so, uh, so I'm glad we're doing this in the context of a 1 Corinthians study. And we are talking about singleness. And today, we're, we're talking about singleness again, but Really, it's, it's part of a much larger uh, conversation about the topic of desire. What does the heart want and why does it want it? And that's something that applies to anybody, whether you're young or old, single, married, or divorced. Desire, the desires of the heart. And how do you deal with your desires? I have a, a slide. We can put that up. How do you handle the disappointments of unmet desires? It's kind of the big question that we're going to be working through. Um, Last year, I was with a friend of mine named Eric Peters, um, and uh, he was doing a concert, and uh, we were talking to somebody after the show who mentioned that he was a professional skydiver and had been a professional skydiver for 25 years, which just always sets my brain in motion. When I find out that somebody has uh, an interesting vocation, there's all kinds of questions that come. It's just... I can't help myself. And so I'm just drilling this guy with questions, just asking him. And, and, and then I came to the kind of the, 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 the greatest question ever to ask a professional skydiver. And I said, okay. Because he'd already explained to us that they keep these very uh, immaculate records of jumps and, and time and all this stuff. And I said, okay, how much time, cumulatively, put it all together, how much time have you spent in free fall? Not... not how much time have you spent between the plane and the ground? But how much time have you spent, add it all together, between jumping out of the plane and pulling the cord on your chute, just falling through the air? And he said, over 30 hours. Think about that. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> and that's terrifying to the guy who gets his 20-foot extension ladder out yesterday and extends it two rungs and looks at it for about 10 minutes and kind of gets my game face on to go fix the roof on my shed. And, and I'm just thinking, oh, I'm going to die. I'm going to, you know, I mean, I'm that guy. I can't, I mean, I'm eight feet off the ground and I'm pretty sure that if I don't just scoot an inch at a time, I'm, I don't know what you guys are going to do today because I wouldn't be here. I'd be dead from falling off my shed eight feet. Think about this, 30 hours plus in free fall. How many of you would say, I hear that and I think, I want to devote my life to that. I want to do that. I want 30 hours of free fall. 
I'm going to start now. I'm going to, whatever it takes, whatever expense, the danger, I don't care. I want this, the effort, the training, the sacrifice of my free time. I'm just going to give it all to this thing so that I can experience 30 plus hours of just falling through the air with no shoot. How many of you would say, yes, sign me up. I definitely, definitely want to do that. Okay, I was thinking maybe one liar would raise their hand, but nobody, nobody is saying yes to that. If you took a poll, though, hey, what about marriage, single people? How many of you would say, you know what? The effort, the danger, the sacrifice of my time, the expense of marriage, I really want that. I really want that, and I, I, would, I would sacrifice so much for that. How many hands would go up? It would be many, right? It would be something you would say, yeah, I want to do that. Marriage is a much greater endeavor and has much steeper requirements of you than professional skydiving. And yet, so many of us want to do this. So what's the difference between free-falling and marriage that would say, there's so many people that would raise their hands and say, I want one, and I'd give almost anything for that. The other one, you know, not so much. What's the difference between them? This is a question of desire, right? It's a question of the human heart. Why does the heart want what it wants? Why do we want this? We're unpacking Paul, talking to these people who are struggling to understand who they are relationally. And today we're talking about singleness and asking this question, is singleness a problem that you have to fix? Is singleness a problem that needs to be fixed? And Paul has some powerful things to say about the nature of the desires of our hearts. And so I want to read, it's a, I'm telling you this is a strange passage of scripture from 1 Corinthians 7. What I'm going to read, I'm, I'm not going to misread it, you're going to hear it as it is, and it's just, it's strange, but we're going to understand why, why it's strange. Paul's talking to singles and to married people and to divorced people, and he's giving them this counsel. It's one of those passages of scripture where Paul says, all right, this isn't the Lord now, this is just me talking, giving you advice, but I think that my judgment is trustworthy. So listen, here's what he says, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 25 to 31. He says, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. If you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman married, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. I'm just going to stop there and say, I'm going to let Paul be his own commentary on that part of the thing, but do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, um, if you're single, I'd say just stay single, and if you're married, I'd say just stay married. If you are single and you get married, you're not sinning, but you are entering a world of trouble. That's what he says. Then he continues, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short, and from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, 
and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. This is what he says. Do you hear an urgency like there's a ticking clock behind Paul's words that he's, he's talking about something and he's saying, look, the time is short. He says it three different ways. He talks about present distress. He talks about the appointed gr- time has grown very short. The present form of this world is passing away. What's he talking about? Do you know? He's talking about the return of Jesus. He's saying, Jesus is coming back and it's not gonna be long. So as you live your life in this world, Live it in such a way as though you expect the imminent return of Jesus to happen any moment, which raises questions, doesn't it? Was Paul, did Paul have a, um, an incorrect understanding of the return of Jesus? Because he hasn't come back yet, right? He still hasn't. So is Paul mistaken? Is he giving them teaching that is, he's just kind of wrong in his end times views? No, he is teaching as many of the apostles did. Many of the apostles taught, all the apostles taught, that everything after the cross and the resurrection of Jesus was to be considered end times, was to be considered last days. And this isn't driven by some sort of cryptic insider knowledge that Paul and the apostles had of some apocryphal book that we don't have. What it's driven by is the belief that when Jesus cried out in his dying breaths, it is finished, that everything to follow, his death and resurrection, was an epilogue of a strange part of the story of redemption, a rare period and eternity that occurs between the two advents of the second person of the blessed trinity that there's this window of time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus that is exceptionally rare in all of eternity, and this is where we live. Think about that. That if this life is a vapor, that if it's just a blink of an eye in all of eternity, we live in an incredibly strange period of time where the Son of God has come, he has lived a life of perfect righteousness, he has died a sinner's death in our place, he's been buried, he's risen from the grave, victorious, has called us into relationship with himself, has given those who believe in him his identity, has said, you are righteous as I am righteous, your sins have been paid for from beginning to end, top to bottom, and I am coming again. That's the era in which we live. And that's the urgency in the apostle's tone. I don't think Paul would have been surprised had Jesus returned during his lifetime, and I even bet that he would have preferred it. But this is an area, it, by the way, this matters to the topic of desire and, and, and how we deal with unmet desires. What we're talking about now is not just an aside. It, it, it matters because this is something that Christians believe. We believe that Jesus is coming back. We believe that this world, as Paul said, is a world that is passing away, that it is winding down, that there will come a time when things of this world as they are will be done away with and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And Christians take all kinds of heat on this idea because it's kind of, what, preposterous, right? To say, well, we believe that, whatever you believe, that the sky's gonna crack open and a you know, and he's gonna come and he's gonna change everything. We believe that he's coming 
again. And yet we've been easy targets for ridicule from the world because Christians do some incredibly stupid things when it comes to the end times. Like we assert with confidence things that we can't possibly know. And we say, this is the way it's going to be. And then we make lots of money doing it, right? Maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. Um, (laughs) But there are these things that Jesus said, you're not going to know when, and you're not going to know where. That's only something God knows. Did you know right now there are billboards in this city that are getting national attention because they say that Jesus is going to return on May 21st of this year? And then that the end of the world is going to happen on October 21st of this year? Website, wecanknow.org. Okay, this exists. This exists, right? And people are coming out and they're saying this. And it's easy for us to go off the rails and to say, you know what? I've cracked the code. I've figured it out. As if cracking the code and figuring it out is the point of believing in the return of Jesus. See, here's the thing. It's easy to misapply why it matters that Jesus is returning. To say, I know something you don't know. Or to say, uh, to to have this kind of self-righteousness about ourselves. Or even to abdicate responsibility. Jesus is coming back. It's all going to burn anyway. So why why does it matter how how I live? This is so unchristian. The point is, is that one fundamental outcome of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for those whose faith is in him is that not only have we been given a new identity in him, one where we're fully known, fully loved, fully forgiven, sons and daughters of the living God and fellow heirs with Christ, which is magnificent, but also that our citizenship, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your citizenship lies with him. Eternally. And when this vapor of a life dissipates, eternity with him will ensue in such a way that wonder and glory and joy and, and, and is going to blow our minds and all our sadness and pain and frailty and grief will subside into this faintest of the foggiest memories, like old tales from a faraway place that we just have a sense of but it was so long ago. That's coming. That's coming. And so, if our identity is bound up in him, if my citizenship and my eternal destiny is with him, shouldn't this profoundly affect the way that I see myself and the way that I see my place in this world? Shouldn't there then be a sense of urgency about the way that I live this life, knowing that it is a world and a life that is passing away every day? The believers in Corinth were struggling. They were struggling to rest in their identity and their citizenship with Christ, and they were trying to find it in Corinth. They were trying to find their citizenship there. They were trying to find their identity there. And so they were seeking it in the temporary constructs of a world that was fading, which is why Paul says, look, from now on, if you're married, live as though you're not. And if you're mourning, as though you're not. And if you're rejoicing, as though you're not. And as if you're buying goods, as though you don't have any goods. And, as if, and if you're in, in deals with people, as though you, you didn't. What's he saying? I mean, he just told married people, hey, live like you're single. 
Now, you have to understand this in the context of everything else Paul writes about singleness and marriage, right? Is he hating on marriage? No, he's not hating on marriage. There are other places where he extols the virtue and the beauty and the wonder of marriage. But he's calling us to live as though every, hear me on this, he's call, believer, he's calling us to live as though every relational and emotional and economic and social and circumstantial circumstantial construct of this life in this world is a passing reality to be gloriously replaced and renewed when Jesus returns to usher in his eternal kingdom. That this is fading. And this brings us back to the issue of relational status and singleness and what do we do with unmet desires that we meet in this world. C.S. Lewis had that great quote. I've quoted it here dozens of times probably. But he says, if I find in myself a desire that nothing in this world can meet, the most probable, reasonable, logical explanation is that I was made for another world. That if I have something in me that all of this around me can't fulfill, then the most reasonable explanation is all this around me wasn't meant to fulfill it. That it has to come from somewhere else. So in singleness, there is for many people this huge unmet desire that I want companionship. I don't want to be single. I want to be married. And what do you do with that? Is singleness a problem that needs to be fixed? And I want to say, singleness is problematic. I'm not going to stand up here and say, it's not a problem to be fixed. It's, it's problematic, you know. Why? Because there are things about being single that are unique. Which is not to say you've got to fix it, but I'm just acknowledging realities about singleness. That there are unique forms of loneliness, Right? that come with being single, things that are just unique that, that can be very, very difficult. There are unique ways that you're tempted sexually as a single person that's different from married people. There are unique inner struggles and questions that you ask, like, why? Why can't I find a, a mate? Why can't I find a spouse? Why, why is my heart more broken than, than satisfied? These are examples, right? There's also this temptation in singleness toward a kind of anger and, and cynicism that is, quite frankly, ugly. Now, when I say that, hear me. I'm not chastising you for being single and being cynical about it. I'm, I'm empathizing. I'm saying I've known people who have so struggled with a cynicism about their singleness that has manifested itself in language like, well, you know, guys are just looking for Barbie dolls, and if that's all they want, then I don't even want a part of it, you know? I, I, this, it's a transparent thing to say, isn't it? Right? It's, you, you don't mean that. You're protecting yourself through a cynical kind of angry response. And what I'm trying to say is that it's legitimate that these temptations and that these struggles and that these hurts would accompany singleness. Every relational status has its own problems in its own ways. But to singles, you do. You face legitimate struggles and temptations and emotions and desires that can be hard to deal with. And I just want to say that's sacred ground. That's a sacred place to stand. I wrestle here. 
So what do you do when you have this unmet desire? What do you do with it? If something in my life is problematic, does that mean I need to fix it? Or could it be that some things in my life that are problematic, it's good that they're there. It's good for me to have this kind of frustration. It's good for me to experience this sense that that I'm being thwarted. Often when we have an unmet desire, we fix it. And some of these unmet desires are easy to fix. I'm hungry, I eat. I'm tired, I sleep. I'm dirty and I smell bad, I'm going to take a shower, right? I mean, we have these things that we say, these are just basic. But, but some desires are more deeply rooted and fueled by something we've talked about twice already in this service, that I am fearfully and wonderfully made, that God has made me in a way that is complex, that is majestic, that is beautiful, that is unique in all of creation. And so there are desires in me, there are drives in me, there are longings in me that want to be fulfilled and they're complicated. And so we experience these complex desires and it's not easy to fix them, right? We experience things like loneliness or anxiety or sorrow or joy, or a feeling of being somehow unfulfilled in life, and we're able to say, I feel unfulfilled in life, and that's a complex thing. And for some of us, what we do when we feel these things, these complex unmet desires, is we become diagnosticians. That's a hard word to say. Did I say it right? You know, we we diagnose and try to fix, okay. Um, We think, okay, how do I fix this? How do I fix this? Do you do that? Do you have problems and you think, I don't want this problem, I'm going to fix it? So then you go about fixing it, right? And one of the things that you will either realize or uh, reap the whirlwind of is some of these things, you, you can't. You can't fix it. It's not a fixable thing. It's not a problem that you approach and you say, if only I could do this, I could fix it. Doesn't stop us, though, from trying to fix the... Uh, external part anyway, and singleness, (laughs) you can do this, right? I mean, look, if you're single in this room, don't get mad at me for saying this, just hear me out. By the end of this year, you could be married, every one of you. There are just a few steps that you would need to take, right, where you would be able to fix the external problem of being single. Now, it might mean that you have to have no criteria for who you marry, It might mean that you would have to have no standards uh, for what your potential spouse could be. But see, here's the thing, right? We're all laughing because that's not how it works. We don't want to just marry anybody because we have desire. We have a desire that says, I want to be loved. I want to be cherished. I want to be known. I want to be in a relationship with somebody who knows my problems, who knows my struggles, who knows what makes me uh, beautiful, who calls me beautiful. I want to know these things, and I want them to know these things. And so that's why we don't just go marry whoever we want to, or, well, whoever we want to. That's not what I mean. We don't just go marry anybody, right? We want something here. But then we have that unmet desire, right, that says, okay, the solution for me is not I'm just going to marry anything that walks. So what's the other thing we do sometimes? We kill it. We kill the desire. I do not like how this feels. I will not feel it anymore. I'm going to kill it. I'm going to kill this desire in me 
for companionship. And we say things like, marriage is just an outdated tradition. Who needs it? I'm just going to hook up. As if that's going to fix the problem, right? Or we say, guys are just looking for Barbie dolls. Or we say, and this one's a true story, I'm just going to start my life over in another place. I have a friend who, through abuse and broken relationships, um, and then one bad dating relationship that went south, left the country and was very public about, I'm getting out of here, who needs this place? Went halfway around the world, did it a year ago. Things are not any better, so what is he doing now? Now he is talking about renouncing his American citizenship. What? Really? Is that going to fix it? Is that going to fix it? Is that going to fix the pain that's inside of you? I mean, because what does it look like? I'm going to get as far away from the occasion and the place of my pain as I possibly can. I'm going to kill it. And the way I'm going to kill it is I'm going to get as far away as I can. And if that doesn't work, I'm going to go even further and I'm going to sever off my citizenship from this country so that I can't even go back. I mean, it's, it's drastic. Would it surprise you or sadden you to know this person is still in their 20s. Oh, my heart breaks. My heart just breaks. Because, not because of this sad thing that this person's doing, but because it's in me to do that too. I get it. I totally get it. It's not going to work, but I, I get it. How do you work to avoid the disappointment? of unmet desires. To whom or to what do you direct the cries of your heart in light of unmet desires? Because you've got them, whether it's singleness or a marriage that's not what you hoped it would be, which I gotta say, for so many of us in this room, a marriage that is not what we hoped it would be, the uh, subtitle to that is, I'm really not the spouse I hoped I would be. In, in Mark 10, Jesus is walking through a village and there's a man named Bartimaeus and he's blind, he's a beggar. He's sitting on the side of the road and he hears the commotion. He's like, what's going on? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth is coming through and he's like, he is? And he's heard about Jesus of Nazareth. So what does he start to do? He starts to cry out, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus hears him and he stops and he goes to blind Bartimaeus and he asks him a question. You know what the question was? He says, what do you want? Was Jesus dumb? Could Jesus not tell that he was a blind beggar on the side of the road? What do you want? What do you want? It's a good question. Because did Bartimaeus simply just want, hey, you know, my optic nerves don't communicate properly with my brain, and I want my optic nerves to communicate properly with my brain. Is that what he wants? I mean, it's a part of what he wants, but it's not everything that he wants. He wants something so much more, and Jesus is putting the question to us today, what do you want? 
If you're single and you want to be married, what do you want? If you're married and you don't want to be married anymore, what do you want? If you're married but you're not the kind of spouse that you hoped you would be, what do you want? That's the question. When Paul tells the Corinthians, look, live like this world is not your home. The aim isn't that they would kill any desire in their heart. Paul is contending for them, look, heighten your desires, raise your desires, long for more than this world is giving you, want more than this world is able to give you. Be that kind of person. Be a person who says, this world can't satisfy me on the deepest level. I need more. Blaise Pascal said, two things contribute to our sanctification, pleasure and pain. What if there is something holy about unmet desire that gives us a complexity of blessing and benefit and maturity and growth that simply meeting that desire couldn't possibly give us? What if there is something that God has for us that is precious and a heart that is hungry? Simone Weil said, the danger is that the soul should persuade itself that it is not hungry. It can only persuade itself of this by lying. What does Bartimaeus want? He wants sight. Yeah. But he wants what is wrong to be made right. He wants what is broken to be made whole again. He wants the distance between himself and the community in which he lives to be a gap that is closed. He wants to be a person who is not known by what is wrong with him. Blind Bartimaeus. He wants to just be Bartimaeus. He wants to be loved as Bartimaeus. That's what he wants. When Jesus says, what do you want? He knows the answer to that question. You want what is broken to be fixed. You want what is hurting to be healed. That's what you want. Jesus tells him, your faith has made you well, and suddenly he can see. And we clap we resonate we like this because that's what we want we want this happy ending we want to know that what is wrong will be put right and so we're single and we have this unmet desire and it's hard and it hurts and it's legitimate that it hurts and yet at the same time it is God being good to you And I know for some of you, you think, all right, I'm getting off the train now because that just sounds like a pious platitude from a preacher who just wants me to just, you know, just take it. No, no, no. No, 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 no. Romans 8. In all things, God works together for the good of those who love him. He works all things together for the good of those who love him. And if you are single, he is using that for your good. He is. He's using it for your good. The alternative is that he is using it not for your good, which would be using it punitively in your life. And it is a theological impossibility that God would be using your singleness to punish you because the gospel is true. Because Jesus Christ lived and died in your place. He rose from the grave. He gave all of his righteousness to you. He took all of your sins, past, present, and future, upon himself, nailed them to the cross, and that's where they remain. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. If you are in Christ, you are justified. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. I can't be punished for my sins because Christ was punished for my sins. 
for you to receive anything punitively from God is for God to demand two payments for your sin, and it is unjust. See how the gospel works in our consciences, in our minds, in our hearts. Romans 8 says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? God is being profoundly good to you right now. He is being perfectly good to you right now. Don't kill your desire. Don't live like this world can satisfy what your heart was meant to long for. Don't live like a spouse will answer every question in your heart and every desire in your heart and every longing in your heart for love. Because any married person around will tell you, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. Don't let the desires of your heart be killed. Don't kill them. Don't crush them. Don't snuff them out. Why? Because you were made for things that are so much more glorious than anything this world can give you. You were made to know a love that is more magnificent and more beautiful and more wonderful than you can imagine, than you can possibly imagine, than all of us together could possibly imagine. If you're single and you want to be married, then desire to be married with everything that is in you. And know that that desire is there because God has given it to you. Take the longings of your heart, the unmet desires, the hunger for intimacy to the one who made you and knows you and loves you better than anything in this world or anyone in this world could ever do. The promise of the gospel is that in Christ you will not be disappointed in this. You will not be disappointed by leaning into the desires of your heart and by longing for the things that nothing in this world can satisfy. You will be exceedingly and perfectly satisfied ultimately. Why? Because this world is passing away and there is one that is coming, which John wrote about in Revelation. Here is description. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This world is passing away, and he is making all things new. And in light of that, I ask you this, singles, married, divorced, young, old, what do you want? Pray with me. Father, you, um, you know us. You know 
the way that we're wired, you know the voices of our culture, you know the way that we um, listen and respond and, and, and believe uh, the voices of this world, the way that we believe that this is all there is. Um, Father, it is not. And uh, I pray, Lord, that, that as we think of Paul's words to challenge us to live as though the constructs of this world will never be able to satisfy the deepest longings of our heart, that you would make us people who find joy in that and not sorrow, that you would make us to be people who find great relief in that, uh, Father, that you would convict us of the places where we are trying to, uh, uh, trying to kill our desires, Lord. Um, Father, would you, would you test our desires? Would you, would you refine our desires? Uh, but would you please protect us from being a people whose approach to unmet desires is to not have any desires any longer. Father, would you make us people who are hungry in such a way that the only thing that can satisfy us is you and your glory alone. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen.